Welcome to Hired the Podcast. I'm here today with Lisa Massi-Antonio, Chief Workforce Officer for the ARM Institute, Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing. Lisa, great to have you here today. Hi, Travis. It's nice to be here today. It's fantastic. So, Lisa, as I was doing some homework, I noticed that, very interestingly, you and I have had a bit of a squiggly path to get to where we are, but we both started in radio. We did. I I used to work for um, B94, oh my goodness, many, many, many years ago. And um, it, I always say it was the best job that anybody in their 20s could have had. I, I learned a lot. I made a lot of friends, a lot of connections. I decided to get out of radio when I wanted to go back to school to get my master's. I had been accepted at Carnegie Mellon, so I took a job at Carnegie Mellon uh, in full disclosure to get my master's for free. And the rest is history when I fell in love with the university and all of the work that they were doing. I think it's it's so interesting and some something I, I think is so important that a lot of companies can forget that where somebody starts in their career is never as important as where they're going or where they want to be. And like myself, the skills and talents I learned and developed getting started in a totally different business, there are so many that are uh, parallel and I believe helped me be successful in what I'm doing today. And I'd imagine the same is similar for you. It, it is so similar, and this is what I always tell my son, just to, he's a freshman at Penn State right now, is find something that you do well and start to dive into it. And you're going to find so many pathways that can come from that one certain skill, that one certain um, thing that you're excited about. And there are jobs out there that you don't even know exist. There are jobs that you and I at our tenure don't know exist. And the more connections you make, the longer you're in the workforce, the sky's the limit. Absolutely. Your son's at Penn State, so double duty a couple of weeks ago when you went down for the Nittany AI Challenge. How many jobs are going to be in AI in the next 10 years that we never would have dreamed possible 10 years ago, five years ago even? It, well, I would make an argument that many. There, there are going to be millions of jobs that we couldn't even come up with a job title right now. But I also think with the um, insertion of AI into a variety of sectors, there are going to be jobs, things like data analysts right now, um, where it becomes so critical that they hadn't thought once I got into this pathway as uh, artificial intelligence uh, comes about, what will have to happen with that data? How do I store it differently? How do I make different decisions based on what I'm learning? What kind of data should I be extracting uh, from a robot, for example, in my world? And how do we make good, smart decisions about, um, uh, about what we're learning? So I would say there's gonna be new jobs and there's gonna be a change in the uh, trajectory of the jobs that are currently being filled. How are companies gonna deal with this? Because I see this as, as a very, big challenge and not only are there going to be so many new jobs but there's also the aging workforce where we're going to lose a significant amount 
of institutional knowledge and not enough people entering the workforce to replace the uh, all of the baby boomers that are leaving the workforce. So not only are, do we not have enough people to replace the jobs that we're losing, what about all of these jobs that are going to come that don't even exist yet? How are companies dealing with that? That's a great question. So in, in the world of manufacturing, and this is a good question because this is why my job exists. When you look at the manufacturing workforce, we don't have enough people to fill the jobs that are currently um, in the world of manufacturing. With the big push to um, reshore and to start up entities uh, in bio, in the semiconductor world, how do you make a determination between um, having an automated process using a robot or other automated solution versus bringing new people to the fold and how quickly can you ramp them up to take on these new kinds of manufacturing roles? And it's striking that balance that's going to be so important because as you said, succession planning in old day manufacturing made perfect sense. And Travis is uh, getting into either a new line or Travis is going to be retiring. How do we reskill somebody to fill Travis's shoes? Versus we've got you know 50% of our workforce with 10 years on the horizon of them getting out of the business, but we only have about 6% of millennials and Gen Z saying they would get into manufacturing. So you've got to really look at that delta mm -hmm. to figure out how do you strike that balance of finding people, retraining them and getting them into these roles where they're maintaining and running the robots or working other facets of manufacturing versus we know these jobs are dirty, dull, dangerous people historically don't like to stay in them, well, then that makes really good sense for something to be automated. Uh, in the world of semiconductors, we're starting to look at um, some of the sensitive materials or things that might be more uh, uh, gassy and dangerous. Um, let's quarantine those sections off and only use automated solutions because we know that they bring with them certain kinds of um, challenges and certain kinds of dangers for a, a human. So working all aspects of the this, this skill shortage and that supply gap that we've got in manufacturing is something that is near and dear to my heart. And it's what we build all of our solutions around. So best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time is today. I think the manufacturing industry 10, 20 years ago, did a poor job of selling the industry as a profession for young people to to enter. It was looked down upon. Everybody had to go get a four-year liberal arts education if you wanted to be successful. And that's not the case. I don't think that's the case at all anymore. What can companies and industries be doing now, since we failed 20 years ago, to enlighten younger people on manufacturing as a great industry to be in that does have the capability to do good things for the world, to create a stable and well-compensated career. We've got to break down those myths and those perceptions that have been pervasive over the last 20 years. What we're finding is um, generations said, don't get into manufacturing. Your grandfather 
got laid off and our whole town fell apart and um, less, it's cheaper to outsource. And we saw during the pandemic, uh, what happened with the outsourcing is that we didn't, we didn't have the capability to take care of the people in our hospitals. So uh, the reliance elsewhere is one problem. And the perception is a, a separate problem. The other thing that um, I am so proud of working in the world of education is the power of our community colleges in our career and technical education and into our STEM um, programs. So the opportunity for our youth to start to learn about these great opportunities, if four years schools are not their thing, that they can get job ready if they know where to look while they're in high school and then moving out of high school into, if you will, the earn and learn model. So the apprenticeships and the components where they don't have um, the huge student loans and they can start to make money quickly. And these jobs offer great benefits and they're very safe. The dirty, dull, dangerous worry is no longer as pervasive as it was back 20 years ago. So I think word of mouth and understanding and the curricula, making sure that our um, grade schools all the way up through high school are getting these kids ready and making sure that they know there is a very positive stigma with these jobs uh, versus the negative stigma that they may worry about from 20 years ago. What can companies be doing now to help with their um, workforce problems? If, if the there's not enough people to fill the jobs that have the skills necessary. What can they be doing to look maybe beyond the skills necessary to, to train or teach or find people that have some of the basics or maybe more importantly, the great soft skills and potential to be successful. They just don't have the technical know-how yet. Um, if, if you'll grant me the opportunity to talk about a tool that we've created for this exact problem that you're describing. I got it on my um, list to bring it up. I can't wait to hear about it. So it's called roboticscareer.org. And as a national institute, when we were stood up, um, the Department of Defense invested money um, into us to help raise the state of the practice for robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence across the country. And we initially started to fund uh, programs to go out and create some apprenticeships and earn and learn programs, so forth and so on. And when we came back to our membership, which is about 410 organizations large, so we, we do have the vast majority of voices in the manufacturing ecosystem advising us, they said, it's not a problem that we don't have enough training or apprenticeships out there. What we don't have is standardization between the employers, um, the training providers, and the students slash ed the education seekers slash uh, potential employees. And we need you as a national institute to take a step back and start to put that standardization in place. And so the first thing we did was we looked at the vast array of skills where um, that skills gap is the largest, and it's at the uh, robot technician level. Mm -hmm. So if you are a manufacturer and you've got across the broad swath of your company, 
uh, a large aerospace company might have 12,000 open jobs at any given time. Well, that's obviously going to slow down your throughput and your productivity at the end of the day. Our small and medium manufacturers might have 12. Uh, likewise, you're not getting the production that you need. And part of the problem is um, at the technician level, the manufacturers only had one broad swath. I need a, somebody to come in and help me to maintain and, and run these robots. Well, somebody who really understands welding versus sanding versus grinding versus drilling are all very, very different sets of competencies. And so we've created a competency framework with the Department of Defense, with our union colleagues and our membership that says, here are the things within your fundamental level and your more specialized and in your higher level moving into the engineering, the kinds of things that people need to know. And so we've got this competency framework and then we've got inside of roboticscareer.org almost 17,000 training programs across the whole country that map to at least one of those 26 competencies. And then we also have a capability where we go in and we audit those programs. So we can tell people what are those best practices? Are those programs that they're taking the courses from meeting the needs of the industry? Are the skills that they get transitionable? Are they expandable into higher level, well-paying um, new sets of jobs in their career pathway? And then moving forward in June, we launched with um, the help of the Department of Defense and Department of Labor, a job matching component. So imagine those 26 competencies, imagine the training providers. Um, now the employers can say, here is a job description that are very distinct and different across all of the needs. So it's not just one person coming in, working hard and feeling like they have to go in one pathway. Mm -hmm. So it gives them the ability to be able to uh, diversify their workforce and, and build on the strengths of their people because not all of your technicians are built the same. And then likewise, along with that, we've got a capability for the individuals to come in and build their own profile. We've got about 500 um, individuals who have created these very robust, almost like a LinkedIn for manufacturers, okay. where the job um, seeker and the employer can find each other speaking that same language. And so not everybody's trajectory needs to look the same as it did in you're, you're now an apprentice, you're now a journeyman, you're now a master you can move through those career pathways more deliberately and highlight the skills that you like and that you want to build towards. Um, I think one of the other problems um, based on your original question is the manufacturers themselves just don't have the resources to upskill people. Hmm. And so we need to make sure that we are keeping the cost of going back for training uh, at a low cost, make it rapid training, easy to move to the next level, um, not cripple um, the productivity and throughput by pulling people off the line. And so you'll hear a lot about things like micro-credentials or rapid training, and those are key elements um, sprinkled in with the two-year degrees and the CTE programs and the high school programs that are helping to move people through those career pathways in ways that we can help to shrink that skills gap. Is that something that's available to anyone or only available to members of ARM? 
it's free to everybody. Um, we the jobs themselves. We've got about two thousand jobs uh, at any given time that people can go in and apply to. Uh, they are pulled from a lot of the major sites as well as our manufacturers going in and putting uh, their job needs into the system. As people are going through training, what are the skills and areas you see are most beneficial over the next couple of years for people to focus on upskilling themselves or companies to focus on training their people on? The, so when you look at the implementation of um, the cobots, the robots that can cooperatively work next to a human without injuring them, there are a lot of things that the robot can take over. So hypothetically, if I'm um, a, I use the welding example. Okay. If I'm the person on the line who is doing the welding, um, historically, uh, you've got burns, you're, you get flash in your eyes, and you have to take time off because of the repetitive injuries and so forth. So what we would be looking at in an instance like that is that is a perfect person to run and inspect what that robot is doing. So we would look for the skills to have that individual now understand the mechanical systems, the electronic systems of that robot, and in a new way, inspect the seam that the weld did. And likewise, if it's a sanding process, so I've been doing this, I've been doing this, now I'm able to run the robot that does the sanding, and I'm making sure that the precision is something that will pass inspection. So there's always these nuances of the expertise and people fear robots will take jobs away. I say robots are needed because we don't have enough people doing the work, but it gives people new career opportunities to hone in on their expertise and, and use their skills in new and different ways. So if someone has been welding for 10, 20 year career to now take the time to learn the technical specs of robotic welding equipment and how to become an expert in the products that are automating the welding versus continuing to do the welding. And what's the, what's the cost benefit for an organization to train their people and to invest in the infrastructure to hiring certain number of traditional welders versus investing in automated or cobot welding equipment? I would say um, don't automate for automation's sake. Okay. That's, that's never a, a good fit because some people have complained, um, hey, I bought this robot and it's standing in the corner and it's collecting dust because there was a, a company who came in and told me I should buy it. That people in the world of manufacturing need to look at that cost benefit analysis. And we were fortunate enough to be one of the programs in Pittsburgh who were a recipient of the Build Back Better grant that mm -hmm. was won here. And what we're designing with our local ecosystem is a de-risking solution where um, a manufacturer can come into our building and simulate um, the process that would be changing to see how it would optimize their business practice. And I think that that's something that's absolutely critical is to make sure your automated solution is serving a purpose. 
and it will improve your productivity. It will bring down your cost. It will help your throughput, whatever your business challenge is that you're trying to resolve. Interesting. Lisa, I was a lucky enough to, uh, because of you, to see um, an advanced copy uh, draft of the ARM Institute's Future of Workforce Study, which said it's coming out for members in November and to the public in January. And a lot of interesting points in there. One I wanted to touch on, and this is a quote from the article, Diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility programs are becoming increasingly common and funded by both private and government sources. And I'm curious as to, not that I don't see the importance of it, but why are companies seeing the importance of it and what is the benefit intrinsically and extrinsically for organizations to have this as a part of their focus? Yeah, and I can, um, before I answer your question, say um, it is not lip service. Um, we've we've put it as one of my six primary challenges that we're focusing on. So when you look at the workforce challenges and not having enough people um, to get into manufacturing, not having enough people currently in manufacturing, with the implementation of these automated solutions, people who may not have typically looked at manufacturing for a career pathway now have an opportunity. I'll use me as an example. Um, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, nobody would hire me. You know, I'm five foot three, I'm small, I'm not strong. That I, I wouldn't have had a sensible place on an assembly line. I'm simply not big enough. I would have slowed everything down. Now with the implementation of these automated solutions and the safer practices that our manufacturers are using, women are perfect, perfect to get into these um, jobs. And so we've got a lot of these rapid training programs that we're running both here in Pittsburgh and in Florida across the country um, at the behest of the Department of Labor. And I'd say about 40% of the people trying to get into these manufacturing jobs are women. We've got a huge opportunity for people. Um, if, if you look at the areas where manufacturers hire from, it's typically in their region. And mm -hmm. a lot of them are set up that there is a um, community college or a career and technical education program uh, relatively closely close. Um, and pretty soon that area gets tapped out of people to pull in. So through the um, ability to bring mobile units and and look at the outskirts of people who aren't um, typically right near. So you can diversify um, just based on the area that you're pulling from. So that's part of the DEIA. Um, accessibility. So we've got um, a number of people through the rapid training program with a with company called AmSkills down in Florida where we've had disabled veterans come in with physical limitations for one reason or another, who now they're target rich for coming in and taking on some of these roles. So the diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility is definitely a tool for pulling people who may not know that these manufacturing jobs are great, great progress for what other jobs that they might've had before. And so how do we get the word out? How do we bring the capabilities to them? And how do we match them to the manufacturers is something 
um, that is personally near and dear to my heart. I was fascinated by the case study in the report about the um, specialized custom training programs for people with autism to get into the manufacturing industry and how to tailor that training for people who do have some special needs and how to increase the accessibility for people in manufacturing that would not have traditionally had a place in the industry. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I look forward for everybody to get early access uh, when it comes out into the public in January. But exactly as you just described, Travis, they typically wouldn't have been um, somebody that a manufacturer was looking as a, a target audience for um, recruitment. And what we have found is people who are on the spectrum um, are really thriving in this environment. And so the, um, the case study that you describe shows how do you customize um, the decision for them and their families, um, make sure that the training is comfortable for them, but the work environment, um, they're, they're moving uh, forward in their careers and making a lot of money and having great benefits um, instead of other alternatives where um, you didn't have that upward mobility in in the, in the whole broad spectrum of all of the DEIA candidates that are moving into manufacturing. And a lot of this plays a part into what the report says is one of the biggest challenges over the next five to 10 years with 2.4 million manufacturing jobs that will be left open by 2028 due to the skills gap caused by the lack of trained workers in an aging workforce, and that is a challenge. And so it sounds like a combination of all of these things to expand the pool of the workforce and to uh, include people who would not otherwise have been included and to train people who are currently in it in areas that are necessary or will be necessary in the near future. What else can can and should companies be doing to be ahead of the curve as this continues to become a bigger and bigger problem for the manufacturing industry? I would say it, there's no one, one big solution. It's going to be a variety of uh, organizations starting to focus at, from the top all the way down that this is going to cripple all of our manufacturing. And as we bring new manufacturers in, um, make sure they're going to areas where they're, um, uh, they're able to find the workforce. Um, we're, we're working with the Carnegie Mellon Block Center right now to focus on um, what we call the talent um, supply chain, the talent pipeline. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, you're manufacturer XYZ, and you know that you're going to need 500 technicians on day one. Instead of going into a geographic area just where you're going to get some tax incentives, um, take a step back, look at the analysis of is there a workforce supply? You know, maybe it's um, there, there's been a massive layoff or there's a uh, coal mine, uh, um, uh, the 
the pipeline workers, whatever, where there is a critical mass of people who need jobs in that area. Because otherwise you're going to get somewhere and then you'll just be poaching from other areas that will just trickle down. So in, in a perfect world, we would find an area where there are enough people to fill those jobs. So you're starting to shrink the unemployment and you're starting to shrink the need uh, to get those 500 people. Then figure out what are the skills of those people while the bricks and mortar and the infrastructure is going up. And through um, roboticscareer.org, what we're helping them to do is to find the training. Uh, as I said before, not all 500 should be doing the same thing. They should maybe be doing um, 85 different things and having you know a group of people with a certain set of skills. So how do we take the local training or pool training in from across the country we know that they need, get them ramped up, get them ready, always have a training facility on site so that that upskilling isn't quite as cumbersome as people are moving into these new roles and um, making sure that the employers and the employees are matching their skills as one so that everybody can be productive on day one. And what we learn from that can help to influence the policy um, of how the manufacturing environment can grow and thrive quickly without continuing to um, starve themselves from the right employees. And then what they're designing, make sure the CTE programs and the high schools are building a nice cadre of people to come out and, and move into these jobs. It's such a happy medium. And I see companies on both sides face this challenge where the more people there are, the bigger the pool to hire from, the more expensive it is to manufacture there versus to go out into the middle of nowhere where it's incredibly cheap to greenfield a facility. There's nobody to hire there and it's incredibly difficult to find the right people. What advice would you give uh, to help companies find that happy medium where it can be not difficult to be profitable manufacturing their product and still find a great pool of people for their workforce? Do the analysis up front. Make sure that all of the needs are being met when they make that decision. Um, if there is a place, and I know a lot of our military installations struggle with this, um, they're in areas that people typically grow up and plan to work for the military area, but as their needs expand, it's hard to recruit people in. Uh, maybe that's when the automated solutions have to be addressed. So if they know that they're not able to fill that skill with a human being, build in and design. So I'm always going to be talking about striking that balance um, between automation and the worker, because both of them can benefit each other. There it is, the line to benefit the organization and the, and the worker. It's, it's a difficult balance, but if you can find it, that's where the most successful organizations and people can really thrive. Right. And when we talk about the future of the workforce study, that's one of our underlying elements is to make sure when we look at the next 10 years, what we're suggesting to the employers, we want to make sure that the training providers are moving in that same trajectory 
and that we're building a pool of workers and the students are learning what they need to do to be successful over the next 10 years. So you have to rise the tide for all of those audiences at the same level. Otherwise, you're going to have an imbalance where the worker may not ever be able to catch up with the technological changes that are taking place in the environment uh, for a manufacturer in our case. So you want to make sure that they're all um, becoming more mature and they're all speaking the same language and moving the skill sets accordingly. Yeah, not to dig us, take us down a whole new rabbit hole, but with the implementation of industry 5.0 now, we're zooming past 4.0, which was brand new term not too <laughs> long ago. <laughs> How are people keeping up with, with these skills that are changing so rapidly? They finally developed this skill and it's already an outdated skill and they have to learn two or three new things. Uh, this is what keeps me awake. This is why I am in so, um, I'm so impassioned about what I do because coming from the world of working at Carnegie Mellon for so many years, the, the brilliance of the technologies we see across all of our research institutes, not just Carnegie Mellon, but um, all of the major research universities, it gives me great hope for our future generations of what we can do. But if we're not bringing the, the workforce along at the same pace, this skills gap is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger because we need to keep the individuals on pace with the technological changes. And I don't have a crystal ball. I think roboticscareer.org is an amazing tool to help to shrink it um, in our realm, but we need everybody thinking uh, along the same lines across all sectors and starting to make sure that that skills gap doesn't grow anymore and we don't just throw up our arms and say outsource everything because <laughs> we don't have the people to do it. We did that 20, 30 years ago, and now we're bringing it all back. So reshoring everything back home. Let's hope we don't have to do it again. What is ARM up to over the next couple of months other than putting out this great report in November? So uh, in general, our, our biggest event of the year, our member meeting is in November. It's here in Pittsburgh at the Wyndham. And that's where we start to um, talk to our membership about where we've come over the last year and we roadmap for the future. So from the technology side, what projects are we investing in? What are the key elements of artificial intelligence and machine learning and um, system to system integration, all of our technical thrust? How do we move it forward in a way that's meaningful and valuable for our organizations? From our standpoint, now that we're rounding the curve with um, our workforce solutions, and we've got all of the capabilities in roboticscareer.org at at least phase one. We want to move it forward. What can we do in the next generation of our capabilities that's going to benefit our ecosystem? Tell us these challenges. Um, one of the things that um, is interesting is so it's kind of like, okay, we did our job well, is at the same um, speed that the gap is growing. We also have instances, uh, like I mentioned, you know, XYZ manufacturers moving in and people can't get ramped up fast enough. Mm -hmm. So as we feed the pipeline, 
So what is our play there? So we'll do a lot of focus groups and workshops with our membership to figure out what can we do as a national institute to be impactful? What can we invest in? How do we pull the needs from the Department of Defense, our primary funding sponsor? What other agencies are, are looking at these um, set of challenges? So that's our big uh, activity in November. What we learn from our members are going to start to drive the next generation of our skill sets. We're building out, we, we um, reside um, next to Carnegie Mellon's Manufacturing Futures Initiative and our local manufacturing extension partnership, Catalyst Connection. We all reside in one building called Mill 19. We're in Hazelwood. Another thing that we're doing is the work cells, so the de-risking center that I uh, described in our manufacturing mm -hmm. hub. We've got, um, we're building out an uh, artificial intelligence data foundry. Um, so the physical infrastructure is, is growing and becoming more mature on our end at this point in our life cycle. So um, all of the technical work cells that we're designing, um, one of the things that I'm impassioned about is to make sure that there is a learning component with each of those activities. So we're designing um, for adult learners, uh, experiential capabilities in each of those technologies. And, and um, with the help of RK Mellon, we're gonna be designing K through 12. Um, so we wanna make sure um, the, the folks at the kindergarten through third grade have a very safe environment that they can start to learn about robots um, from three through six um, or three through eight, um, a little bit more touchy-feely, maybe some of the uh, Lego games and, and things that they can get their hands dirty with. And then nine through 12, in a perfect world, we wanna make sure they're coming in and we're providing them an opportunity to become job ready. Mm -hmm. So we'll be looking at the needs of the manufacturer and making sure we're designing inside of our building the skills that they need. So over the next year, uh, those are my big my big thrust areas. That's exactly what we started talking about. How do we prepare ourselves for let's plant the tree now so that in 20 years it's there for us. You're exactly right. And to come back to your point about the um, competition at Penn State that I had the pleasure of being one of the judges. It was called the Nittany AI competition. Uh, I am very, very hopeful as machine learning and artificial intelligence become more critical across all of our sectors. Boy, these, these young adults, they are superstars and they're so creative. The sky's the limit for them because they're not uh, focused on a niche uh, mm -hmm. need in, in their company. And they can really look across the broad swath of opportunities. So when you talk about planting the trees, across all of our universities, um, all of our CTE programs, all of our community colleges, uh, boy, are they producing some stellar young adults. Yeah, can't wait to see what they do. Uh, Lisa, this has been tremendous. If somebody is interested in reaching out to you, what's the best way for them to find you? They can find me, and this is very, very long. So it's Antonio at Arm Institute, all one word. Dot org, uh, or just go to roboticscareer.org and you'll be able to trace it to me and my team. 
We would love to hear recommendations. We would love to answer any questions. Would love to find new collaborators, any way to move these capabilities forward. Lisa, this has been tremendous. Really appreciate it. Um, big thank you to Noah Cuff, our producer, and this has been Hired the Podcast. We'll see you all soon. Thanks, Travis. Thanks, Noah.